This is part two of a three-part podcast. Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. I'm ready to jump into this uh, image. Okay. Um, Okay. Figure 1.1. It's all broken down into three major pieces. A, B, and C. A is year one. It says it says contemporary slash western agriculture, year one. And then B is transitional and conservation farming. And that and B is labeled year four. And C is permaculture. Seventy percent cropland devoted to forage farming. And that's year eight. Mm-hmm. Now, along those lines, I kind of have, uh, in visiting with a lot of different large-scale permaculture endeavors, it seems to me that, that the large-scale stuff is hitting the permaculture tipping point in about ten years. It always seems like it takes ten years to hit that tipping point where the systems start doing what is promised when you start looking at it on a large scale. Now, in the mm-hmm. image that we're looking at here, so they're saying basically eight years, but but in the yeah. image we're looking at here, I'm going to speculate that for this image, it's three acres. I just okay. feel like this is a three – this is a – an image of three acres. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, I mean, it I could be. I don't no, think it's also, 100. I don't think no. it's one. I don't think it's ten. It looks like three acres. Yeah, and I was just going to point out that I think that the time frames we're talking about probably would differ somewhat with climate zone, that you might go a little faster in the tropics. Where, oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, and, but, and slower in, like, the cool and cold temperate. So, yeah. Yeah, I think maybe uh, given that Mollison was probably thinking about subtropics, because uh, he had a lot of his thinking around that area, mm-hmm. maybe these numbers aren't too far off. But if you move into temperate, uh, it probably slows it down some. Right. I, I agree with all of that. And, um, and so I'm going to go with three acres. Now, the pictures, there's these three major pictures. And then we're going to get into the the, the – charts with the numbers and the the values and things of that nature here in a moment. But there's three pictures. The first picture, on the left side, there's a little house with one tree. On the right side, there's what appears to be possibly like a little pond. Like, mm-hmm. so, And i got to point out, too, that between the three pictures, no earthworks are done. The... The ground has a very slight slope, you know, of course, to where the little pond is. Everything yes. has a steady slope to where the pond is. I mean, 
everything is also kind of made. I mean, it, it's possible that there was texture to the landscape before, but of course, when you do agriculture, the first thing you do is you make it very, very flat to make it convenient for all kinds of tractor things. Mm-hmm. And so, in the first image, there is a combine harvesting what looks like, we'll say it's a crop of wheat. And um, does that sound okay? Yeah, I also would observe, interestingly, that if you look at the pond in the first year, it's basically full of uh, sediment, or basically it's dark because you can't see through the water because you're getting all the runoff uh, from the agricultural land. I I was... That that is exactly where I was going next. Yes, mm-hmm. I I agree. That is, and then I think like let's let's talk about the pond for a second. And, and in year eight, the last picture, then the pond is perfectly clear, and you can see a little teeny tiny, I believe fish. It's a fish. Yeah. Yes. Let's say it's a fish. <laughs> it's so mm-hmm. small. It's like it could be anything. But let's say it's a fish. It looks and, like a fish to me. And then in the middle image, the uh, water looks more gray. Like mm-hmm. it's it's transition, right? Right. So now, um, uh, so the first image is just is contemporary Western agriculture. And so we've got the combine with the um, the wheat. And then on the very left edge, there's a normal house, and um, uh, there's a single tree. And then as we get down to the last image, then um, uh, the house uh, gets a little augmentation of sorts. You know, it gets a little a little permaculture, this and that. Um, and that one tree gets a little bit bigger. But, of course, in the last image, I would say that the landscape has been augmented dramatically by trees. There's there's mm-hmm. a lot of trees. Yes. So, um, and then the image in between, uh, which is year four, shows all those same trees, but they're quite small. And um, on top of that, for year four, there's also uh, a tractor spewing out its exhaust into the air, right? Yes. And so, uh, but it's, it's kind of doing... It's working with this new row cropping. That's yes. Like. Yes. It looks like solid trees. Right. You've got. Looks like you've got rows of trees, and that you that they're setting up an intercropping system between the rows of trees, and the, and the trees are growing out. The tractor looks to be running between the rows of trees, and doing intercropping at that stage. Right. Right. So um, there's probably some strips of that wheat being being. Uh, grown again. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Um, I'm I'm trying to think. Is there anything else to say about um, uh, these images? Like, what what have we not conveyed? I mean, there's uh, diversity um, of the trees. It's not just like one tree or one kind right. of tree. Diversity like, of tree species. Um, and I think the other thing to convey is that if you look into the understory of the trees on the far right of uh, C, the bottom picture, at eight years, that it's obvious now that you also have a diversity of understory plants, um, whereas in the the first, you know, it's just a monoculture, basically. There's one little poor, lonely tree next to the house, and everything else is a complete monoculture. But as we're going forward, it's obvious that, that you're getting an increasing um, 
polyculture, not just of overstory trees, but also in the midstory and the understory. Okay. All right. I uh, I think I'm ready to go on to the um, the charts and graphs and uh, numbers and values section. Do you think we're ready for that now? Yes. Okay. Um, so for A, B, and C, there is uh, there are bar graphs uh, showing different values. And uh, there are no numbers on these values, although there are 15 values, and so numbered 1 through 15. But it's like, so for example, the, the, the first one is income. And uh, so it's got a big dollar sign on it, but it doesn't say how many dollars it is. And so uh, all I'm going to do is I'm going to be able to try to state a, a, the approximate size, which I think is good because it's like, is this three acres? Is it 30 acres? And and so, you know, exact numbers don't really matter here. So um, I, I think that it's fascinating that in the very first column, which is income, and this is, I'm going to assume, gross income, the, the dollar sign in the first column is set to a, a relatively high level. And then in four years later, or three years later, on year four for B, the dollar level is actually smaller. So this is mm -hmm. B for transition. And then we get into C, year eight. Now the dollar level is higher than it was in the beginning. So basically sending the message that it's like, to get started, your gross income is going to drop as you transition. And then, but eight years, seven years later at year eight, then it will be greater than it was before. Yeah, now uh, he's in, in the, the notes, it says, of course, bar one is income from total product on the farm. So I'm trying to figure out if that basically therefore means it is net income. Um, in other words, no, how much gross, you're right, that's correct, gross, gross income, and we haven't gone to net yet, that's right. Because the Sorry. second column is cost. Mm -hmm. Cost, yes. And, yes. and uh, so in the first one, the cost is greater than the income. And he's got a little note there that shows public subsidy. Mm-hmm, Yes. I would say that that's accurate. And so um, the second column, and then, in fact, the, uh, the, the cost in the first one is so great that it goes off the charts. And yes. there's, a, there's an indicator showing that this, we're only showing you a portion of the graph. Right. You know. And the other little side note I would make is that yeah, I think given the way things have played out today, I think in that uh, year one chart, public subsidy, it should say public subsidy plus off-farm income because that is another way in which farming is being subsidized right now. There's a lot of farmers that either they or their family have off-farm income that they are using to subsidize the farm in order to, as they sometimes jokingly say, support their farming habit. So uh, on the so the second the second column is cost. I agree, and the, the sec 
the the key is is that four years later cost is less. Mm-hmm. And then on uh, year eight, then cost is much less. And it is uh, the important thing is is that in the in year one and year four cost is significantly more than income. Mm-hmm. And in year eight, income is significantly more than cost. And then he's got a note between the two showing real profit. Yes. I agree with these, with this analysis, with these numbers. And um, I think there's probably 40 podcasts just in these two columns appearing in these three charts. Yes, and I think that the thing is now that we have a multiplicity of examples of that happening in the real world that can have been documented. I think I think true, and at the same time, how they do it is going to vary from person to person. And from bioregion to bioregion as well. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Call The third column, column number three, and um, have I mentioned that that these two pages, this is my favorite part of this whole book. <laughs> I, it's like um, I just, I, I believe that, that these two pages are what propelled me down Permaculture Road more than anything else, um, except possibly the sepulcher videos. But, but it's like looking at these two pages, everything in Permaculture started to click for me. Okay. Column three, oil. Again, the uh, for con, uh, a contemporary Western agriculture off the chart. Uh, for B, barely within the chart, and for C, a small amount. And and I think it's important to point out, it's a non-zero amount. It, it there is there is something there. It's just probably one twentieth of what it was in A. Mm-hmm. You will, you willing to go with one twentieth, maybe even three percent of what it was in A? Yeah, I think it does depend upon the exact modality, but it's going to be a tiny, tiny fraction like that. I think the other thing important to point out about this bar three is that he's making the note that it is oil coming in multiple ways. There's obviously the direct energy use of oil and other fossil fuels, like, you know, running the tractors, so on and so forth. But then there is indirect use of oil, synthetic fertilizers, so forth. Uh, you know, like, for example, the nitrogen is a lot of synthetic fertilizers come from natural gas via the Haber-Bosch process. And so there's a huge amount of energy uh, used that way from fossil fuels coming in. A lot of your biocides, pesticides, herbicides also uh, are very energy intense, and they have a lot of energy coming in. So if you want to think about this, there's all these multiple paths of fossil fuel energy coming into what you would think of as modern industrial agriculture, not just direct energy use, but all these indirect uses. And um, so when you get towards a permaculture um, where you're not using the synthetic fertilizers, not only are you not using all the big mechanized machinery anymore, but you're also limiting all the energy footprint of, you know, fertilizers, pesticides, and a bunch of the other synthetic uh, additives that are used in industrial agriculture. 
So I thought another one that was interesting is is that under oil, um, he counts machinery itself as mm-hmm. oil. And yeah. it's like, I think that's legit. I mean, not only is there yes. going to be a fair amount of oil that's going to be used to have that piece of equipment exist, but it's going to uh, need a fair amount of oil um, to be able to function, even if it's electric. You know? Yes, and then there's also all of the energy that is produced by fossil fuels to actually produce the thing. There's all of the embodied energy in the vehicle itself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is one of the really tricky things. Like when um, uh, I'm working with uh, groups trying to calculate embodied energy and embodied carbon, right, because they're related. Today when we start, you know, there's all this big, you know, are you net zero carbon, that sort of stuff that a lot of companies are looking at. Um, and, and net zero carbon would mean, you know, hey, how much fossil fuels have we burned in this system? Well, then the question is, okay, well, hmm, we have a tractor, but that tractor had to be manufactured in a factory, and it took energy to run that factory, which was fossil fuels. And then you had to mine the ore and smelt the oil, and that's all done with fossil fuels and so forth. So some percentage of all of that has to be accounted for in your use of that you know, tractor or whatever the piece of machinery is, it becomes what they call, you know, first-order carbon or first-order energy, second-order, third-order. And um, almost all of the analyses that have been done so far are first-order analyses. It's like what we call direct use. Um, And some people are starting to try to get into second-order, where they're trying to go one step, you know, an extra step back. But um, it becomes a complex problem of how to account for all of that because, the fact that we are running all of these machines all over industrial agriculture all over the world does also mean that we have to be running all of these factories to produce that equipment and all of the smelting to make the aluminum and the steel and all of the mines to to mine all of that and all of the – I mean, you can keep on going back and back in the process that there is this cascade of effects going back in demand in order for – a farmer to be able to simply get on his or her tractor, get out in the field, and, you know, roll it forward. There's this huge amount of infrastructure of civilization that's piled up behind that in order to make that happen. Um, number four. So uh, uh, column number four, energy produced. And so with that is going to be uh, he's including basically the foods, the calories that you've grown, like mm-hmm. how many how many calories total, not only in food but in non-foods as well. So, for example, firewood. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so in the first uh, uh, situation, A, contemporary, it's very low. In the transitional, it's quite a bit higher, but it's not nearly as high as what's in C permaculture. So I think that it's fair to say that like when you grow things in a multi-story fashion of like trees and shrubs and annual crops and the vines and you know the underground stuff as well and all those kinds of things that the total number of calories in all of that material is going to be far more than in your monocrop which is how we started it with A. Um not only not only with how uh, contemporary monocrop is like okay so you 
planted your wheat, you grew your wheat, you harvested your wheat, and now the field is fallow until we grow the next crop, which may be wheat again, or it may be, I, I don't know, I grew up in an area where it was peas and wheat. So mm-hmm. um, every third year was peas, uh, every third year was wheat, and every third year was to leave it fallow. Yeah, if I if I were going to be picky, I might um, I might suggest that the four, that the the column four in year one should be a little higher, and the reason for that is that we have picked. I mean, okay, industrial agriculture went with annual crops because annual crops, a lot of them, things like wheat and so forth, um, they basically you can use a lot of external energy to push them to produce a lot of calories. Mm-hmm. Um, on a, on a you know, fairly densely. Um, and, of course, they're, they're typically nutrient-deficient calories. So in terms of just pure energy, we have gotten to the point now where modern agriculture is pushing multiple crops on a sterile dirt substrate over a growing season using a tremendous amount of energy in order to harvest a lot of empty calories off of a piece of land. So, yeah, we've gotten to the point where, and this is part of the people where people, you know, argue about whether you can, quote, replace um, uh, modern agriculture with uh, organic or permaculture growing systems and feed the world. And the answer, of course, is obviously yes. It's the only way we're going to be able to. But um, it's because they've now been able to generate quite a few calories off of a piece of land. But if you look at what that crop is, you wind up with crops that were selected because they quickly grow a large amount of calorie. Um, of course, they're still at like a 10 to 1 deficit, 15 to 1 deficit. It's, uh, Mollison points out a 10 to 1 deficit. Other more modern says we might even be getting today towards more of a 15 to 1. I know if we put 15 calories of, of energy in to get one food calorie out. Mm-hmm. But even that analysis falls short of saying that these modern agricultural methods are producing a lot of calories with very little nutrient attached to them. And so we have this very interesting phenomenon today of as far as we can, we can understand, we have the first round of people in the history of the human race who are both obese and undernourished at the same time, chronically malnourished. And so you can look at it, and we have people that are clinically malnourished and clinically obese at the same time because the food that they are getting is devoid of a lot of the nutrients. And what's interesting is because they're getting nutrient-deficient food, their body is always hungry, and therefore they continue to crave more food. And so I think there's a dimension here that, as good as this chart is, we could add, which is it's not just that we're producing more calories and and more energy in the permaculture system, which we are. It's that if we do our job right and we regenerate the soil fertility, that we will also attach a lot more nutrient into that food at the same time. I I agree. I I think uh, I think Mollison's chart suggests that uh, it, he's he might be getting um, five calories after every hundred calories, and so so basically mm-hmm. it looks like there's um, far more oil going in, and there there's, there should be, but it's like it, it looks like it's a little offset, like it's a little mm-hmm. much, and so yeah, I think I would agree. I think I would agree that 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 little that little column there 
I would probably have made it a little bit taller than what Mollison did. Yeah. But I would probably still make it be uh, less than what appears in uh, uh, B for year four. Right. Yes, I would make it a little bit less than that because when you get into that transition, you're losing some of your productivity out of your, you know, monocrop, but you're a little bit more than offsetting it by all the others. And then, you know, you would go up uh, from there as you get into a fully uh, polycultured system. Okay. Column number five is soil loss. Um, and so, uh, which I think is what shows up in the pond, in a mm-hmm. way. Um, yes. I think I'm going to imagine that what's in the pond is not only, you know, soil, but but also going to be other grody things that we don't want to really address. Mm-hmm. But all right. Um, uh, and then this, at this point, um, uh, he does put numbers, and uh, so. In year one, he says 20 tons per acre, and in year eight, it's one ton per acre. So, um, and I would say, you know, okay, it sounds like he's saying that there's still soil loss, but wouldn't we be getting at some point, and maybe the, the idea is that at year eight, you still have soil loss, but on year 12, now you're building soil. Perhaps that's where he's going with this. Yeah, I would hope so. Um and that number, 20 tons per acre, is kind of interesting. Um, the the numbers that I'm hearing today for um, North American agriculture that um, uh, is using the, quote, best practices for soil conservation from uh, are, are not that high. It's maybe, maybe uh, 10, 7 to 10 tons per acre. It's according to the crop, how often it's how often they till and how many crops. I mean, there's a bunch of variables, so you can't assign one number to it. Um, I have also heard that there's some empirical evidence coming out of China that some of their stuff is closer to 20, maybe 15 to 18 tons per acre of topsoil loss uh, per year. Um, and um, it, it also, I've also heard it in ratios, um, which is the ratio of um, food to uh, grown to topsoil loss. And that's another place where we've heard that, like, even um, organic agriculture in the United States is losing, like, five tons of topsoil to every one ton of food they produce. So there's, the numbers are, are, are given in different ways and different sources. Some of them are given in absolute loss, and others are given in ratio of food grown to topsoil loss um, because it's like, okay, if you stack in multiple crops on a uh, on a particular piece of land on one year and you produce more crop then you're tilling more often and therefore you're losing more soil right so that ratio kind of has a has a usefulness to it as well and those numbers are all over the place i've heard a bunch of different estimates but all we do know is we're losing a heck of a lot of in industrial agriculture we're losing a heck of a lot of topsoil at a very unsustainable pace i think for 1981 this is a a profound and powerful statement to make. Yes, yes. And I imagine that um, uh, in 1981, the numbers people might be thinking that uh, that there is topsoil loss, but it's going to be measured in less than a ton per acre, and so um, and that they would have thought that is 
you know, a number of 20 tons per acre would be ludicrous. Mm-hmm. I think that it's possible that um, 10 or 15 years later that uh, 20 tons per acre was found to be rather accurate in most cases, mm-hmm. and that now we have already – so even conventional agriculture has taken steps to dramatically slow soil loss. So now we're seeing numbers as, you know, in the 10 to 15 range after mm-hmm. years of, of trying to stop, you know, mitigate this problem. Right. So basically we're bleeding out a little more slowly. Yes, yes. So in, in uh, uh, soil loss, 20 tons per acre down to one ton per acre, and it looks like uh, for year four it, it might be something close to five tons per acre. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, I, yeah, and I'm, I'm going to, you know, say that what what Mollison intended to show was like on year 12 that you're actually rever- you reversed it, that yes. you're now building soil. All right, uh, column number six, water storage. And so year one, pathetic. Year eight, magnificent. And I'm going to say that by water storage, he's probably not talking about a barrel next to your house <laughs> underneath the spout, you know, kind of a thing. But instead, yeah. in the soil, water storage in the soil, your yes. irrigation needs are dramatically reduced because of the amount of water that is literally stored in the soil. You've got so mm-hmm. much more organic matter. But then, of course, you know, I don't, I'm trying to I, – I would think that if you're going to store more water in the soil, it's because you built the soil, and yet he's showing that we're still at a, a loss. We're still losing the soil. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking some kind of typo here or something. I don't know how to justify Well, okay, so – Soil, you know, what is the what is the thing that hold that allows soil to hold water efficiently? And it turns out, of course, it's organic matter. So, um, ever so, uh, I was just pulling this up to make certain that my my numbers were correct. As of today, the United States Department of Agriculture's Natural Resource Conservation Service. It says that healthy soil. This is a quote from one of their little, one of their little um, um, uh, posters. It says healthy soil has amazing water retention capacity. Every one percent increase in organic matter results in as much as twenty-five thousand gallons of available soil water per acre. Mm-hmm. And the source for that is the Kansas State Extension uh, Agronomy E updates and uh, some research they've done and so forth. So. In other words, if we could take soil organic matter from, say, basically nothing to 10%, then at least a quarter million gallons an acre that we could um, we could increase with the same amount of soil just by taking that soil and increasing it from zero to 10% organic matter. And for people who haven't played this game before, in industrial agriculture, you can basically assume that they're using the monocrop and the, and the synthetic uh, synthetic fertilizers and all the pesticides and so forth. You can bet that your your organic matter is pretty dang close to zero. 
So I, I, I'm going to make an attempt to justify the soil loss and water retention. I'm going to say that in year eight that you are adding a lot of soil mm-hmm. and then you happen to still be losing a little bit. Mm-hmm. So you're actually a net positive, but what, like what, or basically and by soil, I'm, I'm assuming that we're talking about basically organic matter. What's running off? I mean, I suppose it could also be um, other elements like, like clay and silt and sand. But um, uh, so I think what we're saying is that we're building the organic matter and still some of the soil is leaving the well, property. Well, if, if I were being really yeah. finicky, uh, I would basically say that I would I would be doubtful that there was much soil at all in, in the, uh, industrialized agriculture, that basically they were probably growing on top of dirt, not soil. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just to make the technical distinction, because when I'm teaching soil fertility, I make the distinction, right? Dirt is, is, is the inorganic material lacking organic matter and soil life. You don't have soil until you take the dirt, which is the inorganic parts, the sand, the silt, the clay, so on, microaggregates, micro and you add the soil life, and then the soil life produces or, you know, organic matter. And um, through decomposition and, re, and, and the, the buildup of, of different humic compounds and so forth. Um, so, you know, what you're basically doing, it would be a little more accurate to say that we're losing a lot of dirt. What we think of as topsoil, but that soil is actually more related to dirt than it is soil in industrial agriculture. Mm-hmm. And then as we go forward, as we restore uh, the cycle of, of allow, getting all the synthetic biocides out of there and getting the soil life going and getting the organic matter building, then we have a lot of virtuous cycles that are starting there, right? We've got um, returning dirt into soil. Uh, the microaggregates help hold the soil so it erodes less. Uh, the plants are helping to hold the, 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 uh, the soil in place so it's eroding less. We're getting more micro um, uh, flora and fa- uh, flora going on. We're getting um, we're getting uh, bacteria and fungi, and they're starting to create organic matter. And that organic matter is drastically improving the crumb, the texture of the soil, and therefore dramatically improving the water holding capacity of the soil we do have. So all these things are kind of happening all at once as we make this transition. And if we do our job right, then eventually in a proper polyculture no-till situation, we could get to actually being positive and regenerative in our soil creation with that soil sort of coming up to a much better uh, soil organic matter content and therefore holding water in a way that flat dirt will not. I think a lot of modern agriculture does appreciate the value of soil. And uh, when we think about organic matter in the soil, a lot of times that organic matter is dominantly carbon. Um, And uh, uh, so there's a lot of focus on, like, how to hold the carbon in there. But it's kind of like they're shooting for an organic matter level of, like, 1.5%. Like, boy, one of these days we're going to get it up to 1.5%. Yep. And and it's like uh, and they are they are trying to do less till, I mean, uh, in order to hang on to the organic matter, but they're still mm-hmm. doing quite a lot. Uh, but good gardener soil, 
is more than 10% organic matter. Yeah, and it, it basically turns out that um, when you hit about 3-ish percent organic matter, that you, your virtuous cycle really explodes because now you have all of the, you're starting to build the habitat in which the soil organic life can really, you know, come in, uh, set up housekeeping, and get to work. So it's it's oftentimes like you really have to kind of like fight with it in the beginning. If you start off with dirt that is like zero to one percent organic matter, and you start trying to get the soil life going and get this whole game happening, the reason it takes a couple of years is oftentimes you're trying to get from that. 0 to 1% up to that 3% to turn the corner and accelerate out. And so you'll find that you're going to have to fight and have to, you know, like really work with it and, and coddle it along to get to 3% if you let it deplete that low. And then the virtuous cycle will pop in and you'll see it accelerate. You'll get faster gains at that point. All right, let's go on to the next column. Uh, pollution. Pollution very big in year one and pretty trivial in year eight. Still exists in year eight, but, and and I kind of feel like, I, I, I think it's a noble goal to shoot for pollution getting down to zero, but I, I like how Mollison's basically saying year eight, it's still there. And, um, I mean, and I kind of wonder if you get to, like, year 20 and Mollison's right there, if if it's still going to be there, but it's just you know trace pollution, mm-hmm. I I kind of feel like we're we're never going to get away from it entirely. So yeah, I think you know the 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 interesting thing here is you know I was looking at his definition. He's talking about you know when he says pollution, there's two different ways of looking at pollution in the systems, uh, right? One is pollution can be defined as an unused resource that is allowed to accumulate beyond um, the point where it becomes a problem. So, for example, you know, chicken manure, uh, is that pollution? Well, it's according to, you know, it's according. It depends. If it is, if that chicken manure is put through a biological process and allowed to return to the soil, then it becomes a, a huge asset. But on the other hand, if it's allowed to pile up, and is not allowed, then eventually you get such an accumulation, over-accumulation of that asset that becomes pollution. But that is not, apparently, from Mollison's discussion, what he's talking about here. He's talking about things he would, he would call chemical pollution, things like, you know, uh, fuel residues and other kinds, of, uh, other kinds of pollution. And at that point in time, from an ecosystemic standpoint, we would ask, um, we would say, like, if you model the environment, you model the environment as, as a sink for pollution. That is that the biosphere has the ability to break down and neutralize a certain amount of pollution. And the more robust the biosphere, typically, the more it can handle. So we ask the question, if we have a small amount of residual pollution of the sort that we're talking about here, are we are we well below the sink capacity of the biosphere we have created? Whereas in the first case, we obviously well exceed the sink capacity because we have a degraded biosphere that is not capable of uh, absorbing and neutralizing much in the way of pollution. But as we go forward and we regenerate the biosphere and we also drastically reduce the pollution, we will at some point get to the point where uh, the biosphere will be able to act as an effective sink for that pollution and neutralize everything we're throwing at it. 
um, which doesn't mean we should stop trying to reduce our pollution, but it means that we've, we've sort of changed the regime of what's happening. Instead of pollution building up, we now have a solution which the biosphere can begin to degrade and get rid of pollution that's already there. I, uh, I kind of feel like, um, like, like, for example, on the lab someday, I wish for it to be kind of a bike ped community. Um, the vehicles are parked off to the mm-hmm. side and don't really come onto the property. Um, I, I want to get there someday. Uh, but even, even then, it's kind of like, okay, if you're on the lab and you live there and it's totally bike ped um, and you're, everything's, you know, permaculture garden, stuff like that, uh, we, we kind of come back to the whole cell phone and laptop thing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, those are pollution. I mean, when you're done with them, it has to go somewhere. Yes. And that's pollution. And so, yeah, and so my idea is that one of these days, uh, whatever comes after the cell phone, because, you know, hopefully something else will succeed it, at least it will look much different than we, we think of it today, Maybe we'll be able to attack that to the point where, you know, all that stuff goes back into the new technological nutrient cycle and um, does not wind up as pollution, or at least the vast, vast majority of it does not. All right. Uh, next column, column number eight, genetic richness. In year one, it is pathetic. In year eight, it is magnificent. And year four is something in between. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's much to say there. I, right. I think it's true. Yep. And then uh, uh, on column number nine, uh, something we've already kind of talked about, um, and that's soil life. In year one, it's pathetic. In year eight, it's magnificent. And in year four, it's something in between. Uh, I think we've already kind of talked about that one. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, column number ten, forest biomass and wildlife richness and in year one it's weak and uh, year eight it's glorious and of course year four is again something in between in between yeah and I would just point out that that recent research in uh, the resilience of systems has something interesting to say about this I think we mentioned it one time before which is that um, the resilience of biological systems seems to be to some degree proportional to the number of beneficial interrelationships between different elements in the systems. And as you begin to get more biomass, you begin to get more genetic diversity, you get to get more uh, polyculture um, happening, the number of beneficial interrelationships explodes, and therefore the resilience and productivity of the system tends to go up dramatically. So something that isn't exclusively stated here is that Coming along with the genetic diversity, the biological diversity, uh, the microbiome diversity, and so forth, comes this exploding number of beneficial interrelationships and, therefore, a much more resilient um, growing system. This podcast is continued in Part 3. Don't forget, go out to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts.